Before we dive into the sermon this morning, I want to let you know that I come bearing gifts. So I have another book that I want to give away today. I'm not giving away this one because this one's mine. But for eight individuals, lucky individuals this morning, uh, we have this book. It is called Praying the Psalms, and it's entitled, entitled Praying the Psalms, and it's by Don Whitney. And there's a couple reasons why I want to give this book away today. Number one is because it's about praying the Bible. And it teaches us a really helpful method for bringing the scriptures into our prayer life. Now, uh, a lot of times we can get into a rut when we pray. And we end up praying the same old things about the same old things, which makes prayer kind of boring. And then we feel really bad because we don't want to pray, even though the Bible tells us we're supposed to pray, right? And we feel like really bad Christians because we don't want to pray, and even though we're supposed to pray. Well, this book will help you get out of that rut and keep you out of that rut by infusing the, the Word of God into your prayer life so that your Bible reading and your prayer become that conversation with God that it's supposed to be. The second reason why I want to give this book away today is because it's a really practical way for us to apply what we're going to be talking about today. If you notice, we're going to be looking at Psalm 136, and Psalm 136 is a psalm of praise to God about his goodness and his character. And that is a very key element that we are supposed to have in our prayer life. Many of you probably know the acronym ACTS, ACTS, which stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication, which is, a, which is a, just a really helpful tool to help us categorize how to pray in that first letter A for adoration is just a way for us to give praise to God, to worship him for his attributes and his character. And that's what Psalm 136 is all about. It starts off in verse one, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And it continues to exalt God throughout the book. And, and so what this, this book will help you to do is to take examples like that and how you can take the word of God and put it into your prayer life and it has the potential to really transform your prayer life. So, out there on the other side of that wall, by the counseling section, the, the counseling booklet, there are eight books that are available, first come, first serve. But if you don't get one this morning, never fear, because on the back side of your sermon notes is the title and the book information, so that if you don't get one, you can pick one up later. They're about 10 bucks on Amazon, or a Christian book distributor has them for about 650 right now. So, if you haven't done so already, please turn with me to Psalm 136. And this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. Because this psalm is one of the psalms that is known as a Hallel psalm, or a psalm of praise. And if you look at the psalm, you'll see that the second line of every verse repeats the same phrase. And the different versions translate that phrase differently. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV this morning, and so the ESV has, for his steadfast love endures forever. If you have an NASB, it says, for his loving kindness is everlasting. NIV, his love endures forever. KJV, his mercy endureth forever. And if you happen to be one of those ones with a message, his love never quits. And this psalm is a psalm where we don't know exactly who wrote it and we don't know exactly when it was written because there's no explanatory note at the beginning of this psalm telling us that information. But 
what we can gather is that this psalm was most likely used as a common practice in temple worship in Israel and was meant to be read antiphonally, meaning that there were two groups of people who one group would say the first line while the second group would recite the second line, or the leader would recite the first line and the congregation would recite the second line. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do this morning. I'm going to read the first line, and you all are going to recite the second line. And because we have, I know we have a smorgasbord of Bible versions out in the congregation today, we're going to simplify things, and the words are going to be on the screen behind me so that you all end up saying the same thing. Because if you all don't say the same thing, it's just going to be a bunch of noise, and it's not going to, it's not going to be very helpful. Sound like a plan? All right, so here we go. Let's wait for the words. They're coming. That's not it. Well, until they're on the board, this is what you're going to say. For his steadfast love endures forever. Okay? Got it. Verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him alone who does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule the day, the moon and stars to rule the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. 
That was awesome. You guys are awesome. Thank you for doing that. And what we just experienced was a little taste of what it might have been like to worship in the temple in the Old Testament, which I think is kind of cool. But what is this psalm all about? Well, first, and obviously, this psalm is about praising the God who always loves. Praising the God who always loves. Because, like I said, obviously this psalm is a psalm of praise, and it begins and ends with a call to praise God. Verse 1, it says, give thanks to the Lord. Verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods. Verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. And then it ends in verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven. But this The English phrase, give thanks, doesn't quite grasp the entirety of what the Hebrew phrase is that's being used here. Because yes, it does include an aspect of thanksgiving, but it also includes an aspect of confession. That what this psalm is about, that what this phrase is about is confessing who God is. It's giving testimony about God. That, that the thanks that we're giving is a proclamation to other people about the greatness and goodness of God. So even though we are giving thanks, it is a giving of thanks that is meant to be a proclamation of who God is. And what is it that's being confessed here? Well, verse 1, it is a confession that He is Lord. That He is Yahweh. That He is the covenant-keeping God, that He is the one who has made and will con- that is that is faithful to and has been and will continue to be faithful to His promises. In verse two, it confesses that He is the God of gods, that He is Elohim, that He is the one who possesses all divine majesty. That he alone is the supreme power. Out of anything in this world that could be called a God, little g, he is the God of gods with the big G. Verse 3, he is the Lord of lords. He is Adonai, meaning that he exercises dominion over all and he rules over all. That there is not a single ruler or single authority on this planet that does not submit to his that does not come under his rule and authority. And in verse 26, it says that he is the God of heaven, meaning that he sits enthroned over all of his creation, that he is not just the God of Israel, but he is the God over everything that he has made. This psalm obviously talks about how he is the God of Israel and has done some miraculous things for Israel. But what we see in verse 25, it says that he also gives food to all flesh. So yes, he does do miraculous thing and things and rescues his people Israel. But he also graciously feeds pigeons. Because he is the God of heaven who rules over his creation. But he's also the God who cares for his creation. Look back at verse 1. What does it tell us about God? That he is? That he is good. That he is good. You guys know the phrase, God is good, and all the time, Psalm 119, verse 68 says, you are good and do good, meaning that God is the definition of goodness. It's not that God is trying to live up to some other standard, like there's this list somewhere of what it means to be good, and God says, okay, what do I need to do? No, God is the list. God is the standard of goodness. 
And because he himself is goodness, he is the list. He is the standard. And by that fact, anything that he does is good. Because God is good. And all the time. So God is worthy of our praise by the simple fact of who he is and what he does. Because of who his character is. And this psalm talks about that character. And it mentions a single character 26 times. Because it talks about his steadfast love that endures forever. Now let's break down that phrase a little bit. Steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word hesed. Or if you want to have a little bit of throat involved, chesed. At least that's what I've been told. It is used over 240 times in the Old Testament. And it's mostly translated as mercy, loving kindness, or goodness. Or as we have here in Psalm 136, as steadfast love. And it highlights God's covenantal love for his people. It talks about his gracious attitude and actions towards redeemed sinners. And it is used most often in reference to his particular love, and his covenantal relationship with Israel. It points to his unilateral, unbreaking, never-ending promises that flow out of his heart that is full of love and eternal kindness. This is God's hesed, God's steadfast love. And it says that his steadfast love endures forever, which is the Hebrew word yalam which speaks of long duration. And there was one commentator that I read said that this speaks of indefinite continuance. Another one says that this is that 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 which exists perpetually into eternity. That we're talking about something that is unlimited, that is always there, that exists forever and ever. And so this psalm is talking to us about God's unbreakable, promise-keeping love that has continued and will continue into all eternity and will always be here because God's love is as unchanging and infinite as He is. And so this psalm declares to us the person and character of God and his love. But this psalm also gives evidence to his love, and so that's the second point, evidence of the always love of God. And what we see in the psalm first is that creation is an evidence of God's love. Starting in verse 4, it says that he alone does great wonders. By wisdom and understanding, he made the heavens. He spread out the earth above the waters, and he made the sun, moon, and stars. Now, typically... When we think about creation, we typically think, wow, look at all the great stuff that God has made. I mean, we can, it's really nice that it's not cloudy right now because we can see Mount Rainier. And you look at Mount Rainier and you say, wow, it's a great mountain that God has made. But as you look at this psalm, this psalm is pointing to creation as an evidence of what? His steadfast love. And it makes sense when you think about it. Because back in Genesis chapter 1, on day 6, when God completed all of his work in creation, he looked over all the things that he had made and he said it is what? Not just good. Very good. He said it was very good. And it was very good because it was God who made it. Because he is good. But it is goodness of which you and I get to experience. 
God created this good world and we get to experience the goodness of this good world that God created to be good. Today, June 20th, marks the first day of summer. Somebody's praising. That's right. And one of the things that I really love about summer is watermelon. And I remember one of my more memorable times of eating watermelon happened a few years ago at summer camp. And you're probably thinking to yourself, you remember from years ago when you ate watermelon? Yes, I do, because it was that good. And it happened on the day at camp right after we had got done with our game time. It was hot. It was sunny. We were tired and sweaty. And everybody's thirsty. But waiting for us back at the cabin was freshly sliced watermelon. Watermelon that had been sitting in the fridge for a few days. And I remember picking up that first slice and biting into that first slice. And it was so cold. And it was so refreshing. And it was so good and so juicy. And I remember slipping up every last drop of juice because it was that good. And it was good because God made it to be good. But it was also good because I got to experience the goodness. God made that watermelon good. And all of us who ate watermelon that day experienced the goodness of God in the watermelon that he had created to be good. And that is just a small sampling of God's love expressed through his creation. In this passage, it mentions in verses 8 and 9, it talks about the sun, moon, and stars. Which means that because you were able to get up this morning and you saw the sun shining... We experienced the love of God. We see the faithfulness of God. Again, we go back to Genesis in Genesis chapter 8, where God said this. He says, while the sun remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And in this verse, God is promising that as long as the earth remains, he is going to cause this world to work the way that it's supposed to work. That the seasons will function exactly the way that they're supposed to. That the cycle of day and night are supposed to have, are going to happen the way that they're supposed to. So not only is creation, not only is God creating these things, an amazing work of his power, but it is also a great expression of his love so that we will know when we're supposed to plant seed. When we're supposed to harvest grain. When we can go enjoy the beach. And when we can go sledding. And he gives us the sun so that we can work in the day. And, we, and he gives us the moon and the stars and makes it dark at night so that it helps us to sleep. And God is making these things work on schedule the way that he created them to work because he does so for our good. Because he is a God who has made them good. So even though we are awed by what God has made, creation is also a sign of his goodness and an expression of his love that he pours out upon us. But not only creation, but this passage also talks about the exodus from Egypt. That God bringing his people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery is an evidence of the steadfast love of God. Verse 11, he brought them out of Egypt. He brought them up from among them. Verse 13 and 14, he divided the Red Sea and made Israel to pass through it. Verse 16, he led his people through the wilderness. God rescued Israel out of slavery, 
parted the Red Sea and provided for and led them in the wilderness all as an expression of his steadfast love that endures forever. And again, we see mighty acts of God, particularly in the parting of the Red Sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I really hope that when we get to heaven, that there's like some way that we can be transported to these things to be able to see these like, like we were actually there. Um, and if I was there that day, I would probably be one of the ones that would like want to put my hand through the water and like, or maybe, you know, like jump in and then jump out. And that's where the hokey pokey came in. You put your right hand in, you put your right... <laughs> Just kidding. Or maybe, maybe God would have like had some invisible wall and that's what was keeping him back and so, so that we wouldn't be able to touch it because he knew there would be people like me in there who would want to touch. So, I don't know. But all of this is an amazing miracle that God has done. But it also gives evidence of his steadfast love because that is one of the things that God did to rescue his people. And now the, this event, this Exodus event, becomes the thing throughout the rest of the Old Testament that is pointed back to to show, to remind the people about the love of God, that he is a saving God, that he rescues and redeems his people because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And so creation gives evidence to his steadfast love. The the exodus gives evidence of his steadfast love. But we also see, third, that the taking possession of the promised land gives evidence of his steadfast love. Verse 17, God struck down great kings. Verse 18, he killed mighty kings. Verses 19 and 20 talk about how God gave Israel the land of the Amorites and the people of Bashan. And verses 19 and 20 talks about Sihon and Og. And these are kings whose kingdoms were on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And as the children of Israel were traveling to the promised land, they had to go through their land, the Amorites and Bashan. And Moses made a request to these guys, say, hey, can we travel through your land? We'll even pay you for, for letting us go through your land. And both of these guys said no. But not only did they say no, but both of them gathered their armies and attacked Israel. And in Numbers 21, it says that Israel defeated both of these armies and the Lord gave them their land. And in Psalm 136, these two kings become representative of what God did in giving victory to Israel over the Canaanite people as they went in to take possession of the promised land. And here again, we see evidence of God's steadfast love, his covenantal love towards his people. Because back in Genesis 12, God promised to Abraham, I am going to give you a land. In Genesis 13, God showed Abraham that land. In Genesis 15, God outlined the borders of that land, specifically mentioning the land of the Amorites. In Exodus 23, God promises to drive out the Canaanites, the one who currently dwelt in the land that was promised to Abraham. And in Joshua 1, right before the people actually go into the promised land, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to to the fathers to give them. So again, 
Psalm 136 is declaring the evidence of God keeping his promises, of God staying faithful to his covenant that he made 400 years, more than 400 years before. Because his steadfast love endures forever. But before we move on, there's something that we need, something else that we need to talk about here because this text talks about some troubling things. And as you read through, as we, as we kind of looked at it, and just by way of observation, this text makes an indirect reference to the plagues of Egypt in verse 12. It talks about the death of the firstborn in verse 10. The drowning of an entire army in verse 15. And it makes reference to the destruction of certain countries and their population in verses 17 through 22. And now you might be asking, how are plagues, the death of the firstborn, the drowning of an entire army, and the annihilation of complete people groups, how is that an expression of God's love? Well, that's a good question, and I'm glad you asked. Because this is a psalm that is all about the steadfast love of God. That God is faithful to keep his promises. And this psalm is all about how God is faithful to his promises to do good for his people. That God has been and will be faithful to love. Because God always loves. But God is also a faithful God in another way. God is also going to be faithful to his promise to judge sin and to execute his justice in the world. And the Bible makes it very clear that you are either part of the people of God or you are not part of the people of God. You are either in submission to God or you are living in rebellion to him. And Hebrews 10, 27 says that the adversaries of God have a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume them. And back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham that anyone who dishonors Abraham and his people, God was going to curse. And what we have here in Psalm 136, and Pharaoh and his armies, the Amorites and the people of Bashan is evidence of God being faithful to his promise to curse those who stand against him and against his people. Which reminds us of two things. First, it reminds us that God is going to make right everything that is wrong in this world. That sin will be judged completely. And that the damage of sin will be rectified. Pharaoh's army was destroyed and God's people were freed. The Canaanite armies who attacked Israel were defeated and God gave them their land. But the second thing that this psalm tells us is that the judgment of sin is an expression 
of God's love. The judgment of sin is is an evidence of God's love. The Egyptians were judged. The Amorites were judged. The people of Bashan were judged because God loves his people. Because God's steadfast love endures forever. I mean, if God did not judge sin, we would have reason to doubt God's love. But this psalm is a declaration of the judgment of God that is a result of his love for his people. And so this psalm helps us understand that we have no reason to doubt God's love because as we can see so clearly that God judges sin because he loves his people because God always loves. Which means that we have every reason to be trusting in the God who always loves. We are to be trusting the God who always loves. And we need to trust in the steadfast love that endures forever. Because if we're honest, sometimes that's hard. Because sometimes we don't always see the love of God. We don't always feel the love of God. And questions like, does does God always love? Start coming into our mind. And we are tempted to start doubting the love of God. And the answer to that question, does God always love, is a resounding yes. And even though we don't feel it, and even though we don't see it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. And in those moments when we cannot see God's love, when we don't feel God's love, it's important for us to do what this psalm is instructing us to do, which is to draw our attention to the love that we can see. To remember the love that we have experienced. And trust that just like God was showed his love in the past, he is continuing and will continue to show his love even when we can't see it and we don't feel it. And this psalm has given us plenty of evidence of God's love in the past. Plenty evidence for why we can trust in the steadfast love of the Lord because we see it in creation, we see it in his deliverance, and we see it in the victory that he has provided. And this psalm is pointing us to these historical events so that we can gain hope and so that we can gain assurance in the steadfast love of the Lord. But as we look to the New Testament, these historical events also help point to some spiritual realities that are true of us. Some spiritual realities that we can be reminded about the steadfast love of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. Paul is using creation terminology to talk about the salvation that we have in Christ. That we are now something new that did not exist before. That God has done a great wonder in making you a new creation in Christ. Romans 6, 17 and 18. 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have been set free from sin. Once we were in bondage to sin, but now we have freedom. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, the devil that uses this world to try and defeat us. And it is Christ and our faith in Christ that gives us the victory over this world and over sin. Because that's why Christ came. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And finally, 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross is the greatest piece of evidence For the judgment of God against sin. But it is also the greatest expression of God's love for his people. And so, we can look to the cross to know that God judges sin. And he judges sin because he loves his people. Because God always loves God judges sin. God has judged our sin because God always loved. And so the cross continually tells us the same thing that we are reading here in Psalm 136, that God's steadfast love endures forever because God always loves. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who always loves. You are You are our God who always loves. Even when we can't see it and even when we don't feel it, you always love. I pray that you would forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of the times when we doubt that love. Forgive us of the times when we allow those questions to linger. Does God actually love? Father, I pray that you help us to remember passages of Scripture like this that remind us about your steadfast love and may we continually be reminding ourselves of the love that we do know, of the love that we can see, the love that is in the cross. And may we never lose sight of the cross because there we see your judgment against against sin which flows out of love for your people because you are a God who always loves. And now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
you please stand as we